Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello everyone who is listening to this episode of GodPod, and um, it is, I thought it was good to do a GodPod recording, uh, one of the highlights of the month, and um, well, it is for us, not sure it is for you, but there you go, it's uh, myself, Graham Tomlin, and we have Michael here, hello, Michael Lloyd. Hello, Graham. And we have Jane Williams. Hello, both Graham and Michael. <laughs> good, so your, um, your usual friendly GodPod team here to... Um, discuss life theology and everything else. And today we are going to start a little bit of a, a series, which uh, we're going to be doing over the next um, few months or whenever yes. you have to listen Unless to none of you listen to it, in which case we'll stop. <laughs> I don't know about that. We'll just carry on talking. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it kind of arises from um, a bit of work that uh, I've been doing over the last summer where I was writing a book, which uh, ended up being about the Nicene Creed. And um, so we thought we would uh, do some thinking about this um, really important document in the Christian world. And so um, uh, many churches say the Nicene Creed every Sunday during communion services. It's um, quite a remarkable document, 175 words in the original Greek. And um, it's the only creed in the Christian world which is accepted across all churches, whether sort of Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, all accept the Nicene Creed. Obviously, there's a bit of dispute over part of it. Uh, the our version in the West is a little bit different from the one in the East and the, East, the Orthodox churches, but most of it's the same. And um, so here is this really important document that somehow um, unites the Christian church across the world. And so uh, what I thought we would begin, uh, and we'll talk different aspects of it over the coming weeks, but maybe, maybe today we might uh, start our thinking a little bit about um, why we have creeds, because of course one of the um, unique things about Christian faith is it's one of the, the few faiths in the world that actually does have creeds. Um, uh, other faiths like Islam and Hinduism and, um, uh, and so on don't have creeds in quite the same way, these sort of statements of, of faith. And so I guess just to throw out a first question, um, why, why do you think we in the Christian church have developed these things called creeds? You know, why were they so important? Which, and I guess that's partly a historical question as to how they kind of, why they emerged, but also the significance they have in the ongoing life of the church. So um, I'll throw that out to uh, Mike and Jane and see who wants to pick it up. As you've been talking about the creed. Well, historically, of course, <clears throat> they developed because people were attacking bits of the Christian faith, or at least uh, there was dispute within the Christian church about elements of uh, inherited Christian belief, the rule of faith, as it was called, um, and councils would meet and deliberate about those things uh, and come to a conclusion about those things and find a form of words about those things. Uh, and so, um, for instance, one of the main issues behind the Nicene Creed at the Council of Nicaea uh, in 325 was the issue of the divinity of Christ. And the reason it becomes a statement about the divinity of Christ is because somebody, namely Arius, was 
attacking that idea. Um, and so people had to come together and think it through. So that historically, that's often how the creed developed, changed, got augmented uh, later when people were attacking the divinity of the spirit, bits get added on uh, to, the, to the spirit. The one about the father is quite short because not many people have attacked the divinity of the father. I suppose one of the things that illustrates is, is a really quite interesting um, decision-making process um, uh, that, uh, that nobody says, okay, I tell everybody what to believe. And um, and and so this this process of getting Christian leaders together in councils to debate and uh, and discuss and and agree um, has is is a really quite interesting and significant development in how you make decisions. But I suppose um, I suppose you get creedal statements before that, don't you, Mike? You get them. That's um, I was hinting at with the rule of faith. Um, so you 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 get earlier ones that as far as we can see as part of people as people's initiation into Christianity people's baptism and so you get creedal statements from as early as we can find in the Christian community people um, declaring their faith in the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ um, and I suppose that again is is a, a bit of a key to why we have creeds because you can't be born a Christian you have to um, it, it's not a, um, a, a, a religion based on um, uh, nationality or descent, um, descent or anything like that. You have to step into it de deliberately at some point and say, yes, yes, this is um, what I believe about God um, in the company of these people who say the same things. That's right. I, mean, I, thought, I thought I was thinking about <coughs> kind of key reasons as to why creeds emerged. One was almost the need to declare the faith. And as you were saying, Jane, about, you know, a lot of the creeds have seemed to emerge out of, a, out of the concept of baptism. You know, when you're baptizing someone into the Christian faith, what, what is that faith that they, they're baptized into? And this in practice seems to have been that they were taught the content of Christian faith and they had to re recite it back again. Um, so the faith was handed over to them and then they can hand it back again in the recitation of the creed. And so there's a, you know, it was the need to declare the faith publicly in front of the church that was one of the things that i guess the second part of it was was defending the faith against its detractors so you know michael you were talking about that and the uh, you know the engagement of early christianity with paganism and pagan opponents of christian faith that meant that people had to to kind of um defend that faith and articulate what it was that they believed about god as opposed to what pagans uh, and I'll, I'll just, or, or people from from other religious traditions said at the time, and I suppose the, the other thing is is defining that 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 faith. That, that that again, you know, in the the wrestling with what what we make of what what do we say about God in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ? That means you have to say something different about God than maybe was said in the Old Testament, not contrary to it, but developed from it. And so I guess those three things: you know, declaring faith, defending faith, defining faith. Those seem to be part of the processes that that led to the emergence of of creeds. Um, might we going to? Well, I was just going to say, you know, if somebody asks an early Christian, "What do you Christians believe?" They can't just recite the New Testament um, because they don't think the person would hang around. Uh, you need a summary form. Um, 
to to distill the basic way in which Christians conceive of God, and and that's what you get in the early um, creeds. And they're also sorry, Graham. They're also quite a in that sense. They're quite a democratic thing, aren't they? Because everybody can learn the creed, whereas particularly in a in a pre literate society, not everybody can read the scriptures. You certainly can't take them around with you, um, but you can. Everybody can learn and make their own. Um, a, a statement that has however many words you said it had, Graham, in Greek. I can't now remember. Seventy-five. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, and I guess one of the words that was often used to describe creeds were confessions. And that, that element of confessing the faith, which is what you did when you stood up in baptism. And baptism was a really big deal in a world where actually becoming a Christian was quite a sort of dangerous thing to do. I often think there's, there's something we often miss about creeds, because sometimes we sort of say creeds in church in a slightly sort of bored voice, and yeah, I believe in God the Father, blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, confessing the faith, uh, there's something quite powerful about that. And uh, he was brought home to me once when I was a... I was in the chapel, I remember, at, at Wycliffe, actually, where, where Mike is now when I was on the staff there. And I can remember we it had a... It doesn't look as though he's in the chapel. No, he's not <laughs> there right now. <laughs> but he's... Um, anyway, I remember that on the occasion, there was a visiting preacher. And the preacher preached a sermon that was a little bit strange. It didn't quite sort of match with what he recognised as Christian orthodoxy. It was something that... Um, but you could see sort of students and, you know, start getting restless and a bit cross as this sermon went on. Anyway, the sermon happened and then we said the creed afterwards. And I've never heard the creed belted out with such. <laughs> we believe in God the Father. And um, and it struck me that, that captures something about creeds, this element of, of passionate sort of defiant belief. You know, we believe. And, and it's just that starting the word, you know, uh, or, or, you know, we believe in this. And, and you think of the way in which people talk about what they believe in today. You know, I believe in myself or I believe in uh, my football team or I believe in uh, the medicine I'm taking or whatever. And this is saying, no, no, we believe in God, the Father Almighty. That's what's important about this life. And that's what you need to start with in your understanding of the world and your approach to it. Um, and so actually saying we believe in God rather than saying, I believe in myself or my abilities or my talents or whatever else it might be, it's quite a defiant statement. And essentially creeds are a bit more like chants at a football match or, you know, statements of personal allegiance than they are sort of arid statements of doctrinal opinion. I think, Jane, you mentioned it as a democratic thing. It's also a unifying thing. People who say these words uh, have a common... Uh, understanding of God and a common relationship with each other in the process. Um, there's something about saying these things about God that that brings you together, makes you part of a, a, a worldwide community now, but also over over history, over the centuries. We, we are the people who have said these words uh, since the fourth century or whatever. That's the importance of we believe as the first words of the, of the Nicene Creed. It's, you know, not just I believe, and other creeds have I believe, that, that individual belief, but this is a, a corporate statement. I, I belong to these people. I belong to the people who, who, who believe this, and we believe it together. So, um, I mean, we're all talking as though this is what everybody does uh, every week in church. But as a matter of fact, that's not the case, is it? As a matter of fact, a great many church traditions now hardly ever say the creed. Um, are we uh, do we wish to suggest that they should 
Um, do we think that, that that's um, indicative of anything in particular, that, um, that people think we don't actually need that, the, the kind of um, creedal uh, framework that we've been talking about or that we take it for granted? Or I think it's a really useful thing to do, not least because um, without words like that, one is slightly at the mercy of the maverick person at the front. Um, who dictates what is said about God. And then, like the person in the Wycliffe Chapel in your day, Graham, would never happen now, um, <laughs> where somebody go, goes seriously off message. Uh, there's no corrective. There's nothing to challenge that. And people, unless they're theologically drained, won't know that that isn't what Christians have believed down the centuries and believe all around the world today. Uh, so the creed actually acts as a kind of anchor, corrective um, voice of, of the whole people of God mm. uh, and as a control to what maverick people like us might say from the pulpit or from the front. Whether you say the creed or, or not in, in regular worship in the January, you're absolutely right. Some churches do, some churches don't. Um, because there's ones that don't say it and you know you can understand reasons why not sometimes it can be if you're thinking particularly the outsider coming in it can be a little bit off-putting to say this rather long complicated um, statement but even, even in those contexts it seems to me that the, the creed is a, as a sort of teaching device as something that captures the heart of Christian faith it's something that actually does need dwelling upon returning to uh, even in those places where it's not a regular part of worship and so I think I'd want to say to those, those churches, find a way to use this, this thing, because it's so important. It's something that holds our churches together and provides that kind of anchor that you come back to. This definitive description, this summary of Christian faith, you know, if, if um, and it, because it captures everything that we, we, we want to say about, about God. No, well, does it, you know, that might be one of our discussions later on. Does it say everything we want to say about God? Um, but the early fathers of the church, and it's, it is the one creed that has, does hold the church together. So I think I'd want to say whether or not you say it in public worship, it's still something that's there to be used and find another way to use it, find another way to use it maybe as a as a device for teaching or home groups or, or um, uh, you know, a sermon series or whatever it might be, because this is such a key document. And because it is succinct, um, I mean, I, I think it's it, its contents are missionally very significant. There's um, uh, I was just trying to there's a lovely quote from a book called The Logic of Evangelism by William Abraham that says something like spiritual um, spiritual miscarriages are a regular feature of modern evangelism. Um, and he goes on to argue that's because we don't actually teach people the faith. Mm. We teach them to come and be part of this nice community um, uh, experience uh, the presence of God fairly regularly. Um, perhaps we teach them to pray, though I'm not sure that we always do. But we don't actually teach them what they believe, um, and um, so we're not teaching them about about God and what and the and what had, um, what that means then for the life that we are living in the world that is God, of God's making, that came from God and will will and is heading towards God um, and uh, and so I, I mean I don't know if you if you would agree with Abraham's conclusion but it, it's always struck me as a really interesting one um, that we're not giving people enough meat 
um, in in understanding their faith to help them grow a um, a, a solid and lasting um, trust in God. I think that's I think that's entirely right, Jen. In my, in my experience, and and I mean, I think the other thing that the creed does in the context of the if you have it in the context of an ordinary service, and Graham, yes, I, of course, let's get to use it as a teaching aids in fellowship groups or whatever, but. But actually having it recited in, in worship sets the bigger context for whatever it is, whatever bit of scripture you had read that day um, and had expanded on will be a, a, a kind of salami slice of the story. Whereas this gives you the rest of the story. Mm. It reminds you that the one you read about in the gospels died, was raised, ascended, seated at the right hand of God, returning in glory. Um, and puts all of that in the context of the triune God uh, from eternity to eternity. So it it really sets the glorious context that actually shows why this little slice is so important, uh, what it is freighted with, what it what it is carrying, the glory with it with which it is uh, permeated. Um, so I think that's actually an important part of the thing as well. Yeah, and it does. Because if, if the creed is 175,000, sorry, 175 words, the Bible is around 800,000 words, which is a lot of words. Uh -huh. It's kind of hard to find your way around. It's a big book, hard to navigate when you're kind of new to it. And that's what the creed gives you. It gives you the, the kind of definitive summary of what is important about, about the Bible. Um, which I guess leads on to another question I have, which is, you know, when we talk about Nicene orthodoxy, the, the orthodoxy that came out of Nicaea and of course the creed was originally written in 325 it was edited in 3381 at the Council of Constantinople um, and that's the kind of form we have today although again you know later on in the west we sort of added a word um, in relation to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit but let's leave that to one side for the moment but, but that idea of orthodoxy that that word has a a kind of um, maybe a negative feel for, for people. And, and, and for some people would feel like a creed kind of narrows your perspective. It kind of cramps your thinking. It tells you what to, to believe. Uh, whereas, you know, isn't it better to be sort of free to think whatever you, you, you want to think? Um, and so I guess my question is, you know, it does, does Nicene Orthodoxy in that sense, um, does it cramp your thinking? Does it, and that's, that's, that's why sometimes people are maybe negative, you know, um, maybe don't use the creed as much because they, they think it seems like a sort of rather constricting thing. So how, how, do you respond, how do you respond to that critique of the nature of orthodox faith of Nicaea and so on? I think I'd say it's the other way around, that uh, actually what the creeds are doing is um, trying to, steer people away from things that shut down and, 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 uh, and that don't work, some dead ends that, that don't get anywhere, that don't give you uh, life and, and truth and, and beauty and understanding. Um, so the, the non-divinity of Jesus, Arius's kind of view, says there's nothing to be learnt from this life of Jesus of Nazareth, the things that we see, the beauty we see, the healing we see, the revelation we see in that person does not necessarily tell us anything about God. That shuts down. Um, and, and the creeds are very keen that we do not shut down 
those avenues of exploration, those ways of revelation, those ways of looking at the person of Jesus and being informed about the reality of God. And I suppose also, I mean, I, I think, again, we tend to translate in our heads, we tend to translate the phrase, I believe, um, as an intellectual, just simply an intellectual exercise. Um, but if you if you were to say, I trust, I, um, then you you are in in some sense you are you're putting your trust in um, a, a description of world of world and human life that depends on it being this God, um, and so to 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 think it's it's taking away our freedom to believe in other gods and or in other ways of life or other descriptions of the universe. Well, I suppose that's true. Um, we are putting our trust in this one um, that this is this is the reality. Um, and uh, like all Christian faith, there is that step of into trusting, depending on on God. Um, uh, and that's why it is appropriate that creeds are said at baptism. I'm, we're, we're stepping out of one um, uh, way of life into another. We're stepping into um, an interpretation of the whole universe that depends on it being this God. Um, it's related to the question of if that's what orthodoxy is, what, what's the significance of heresy? And I guess you've talk, talked about that, Mike, a bit. Well, constantly. Are... He does nothing but talk about heresy. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than talking heresy, Jay. But I suppose it's, you know, you were sort of hinting, I think, at the idea of the heresy as, as pathways that go nowhere. Yeah. Or that actually lead you into destructive and dangerous places, ways of thinking that will actually ultimately cramp you. It'll yes. kind of box you into a corner where you have no um, nowhere to go. And actually, there are ways of thinking in many ways. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, and it strikes me that, that that almost every community needs a sense of heresy and orthodoxy. Oh, I often think of you know that that you know political parties. Um, if you have a particular sort of belief, if you're a, a sort of left wing political party. That has a certain set of beliefs about um, the way society works or, or, or whatever, to adopt a, a completely different set of ideas. Um, you know, maybe to start talking about, you know, a sort of um, minimal government or, um, you know, low taxation or whatever else, those begin to be heretical ideas. In other words, they're not true to the kind of the identity of the, the party that you're part of. And so, simply, you know, if you don't have a sense of heresy, you don't have a sense of identity. You don't have a sense of who you are. Um, if any idea is valid within a group, then 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 the identity sort of slips away altogether. So it seems to be uh, heresy is somehow uh, vital to keep a sense of identity and shape and definition to what you know to, to who we are as human beings. I, I think what puts people off is the way in which um, a Christians have been too quick to declare people to be heretics uh, without actually giving them a proper hearing um, or a sympathetic hearing, and B, the way they've treated them once they've come to the conclusion that they are heretics. Uh, now, that none of that follows from having a sense of orthodoxy. Um, in fact, I think you can't have a sense of truth and rationality unless you have a sense that if this is true, then this is false. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. and, and, and there's nothing wrong with, with having a sense of rationality. The problem is if you then use that as a stick to be really unpleasant to the people you're disagreeing with. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think it's, um, I mean, it relates back to your point about there's something about sort of narrowing your focus. When I, I came across a quote some, some while ago, um, as all quotes, you can't remember who it's from, but it's just something like, you know, narrowing your focus to the revelation of Jesus, of God in Jesus Christ opens up a world of endless possibility. And that seemed to be to capture something that, that actually, that, that if, if in Jesus Christ, as the Nicene Creed says, we are given a definitive word from God, God speaks to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So we know who God is. We know that there is a, a word that is spoken to us. There's a word, this logos that runs through the whole of creation. Then it, it means there is such a thing as meaning that my words can mean something. They resonate with a word from God that comes from the other side. And um, it's the point that the great sort of cultural critic George Steiner made, you know, that, that unless there's a word from the other side, our words don't really mean anything. And then we've seen a lot of that in sort of, you know, some postmodern philosophy since, since then. And so it seems to me that, 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 that actually creeds do open up the possibility of rationality, of order, uh, of a bigger world than we ever could have imagined otherwise. And we may explore a little bit more of that next time when we come to thinking about the, uh, the doctrine of God um, that the creeds sort of um, offer us. But I think that perspective of the creeds actually opening us up to a bigger world than any secular vision can offer. It's quite an important aspect of what creeds are about. So we're recommending the use of the creed, is that right, Graham? That was a pretty good idea, don't we? Yeah. I think, I think we, we are depressingly united on that, yes. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, we've um, reached the end of our time, and it's been a really fascinating little beginnings of a discussion on the nature of creeds, the significance of them, why we need them in the church. And um, uh, we're going to be carrying on uh, over the coming months, um, looking at aspects of the uh, the Nicene Creed. And uh, it may be that as you come to the end of listening to this podcast, you might want to go away. And um, uh, if you don't say it often in your church, Google the Nicene Creed and just begin to ponder it. And it's a, a kind of document that takes some t some time to, 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 to weigh. You don't just read it quickly and just get on get on with the rest of life you have to ponder it ponder it deeply every word of those 170 words was sort of wrestled over um if you're going to sum up 800,000 words of the bible in 175 words every, every single one of those words has got to count and so that's why it's worth really pondering long and deep and hard and thinking about it so hopefully the next few god pods that we do and um, will help you um delve into the depths of this remarkable document uh, but until then uh, it's um farewell from all of us it is Goodbye. And uh, see you next time at the next GodPod. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.